Welcome once again to Redemption Hill Church. For those of you who don't know, my name is Raymond. I'm one of the pastors here. And we are going to be, other than tripping over this music stand, we are going to be finishing, believe it or not, finishing our tour through the book of Colossians today. So it's always good to catch the finale. After about five months of going through this letter that Paul wrote to the church at Colossae together, this is the finish line. And so we're going to be in Colossians chapter 4. Verses 2 through 6. And just for closure, just because I really like closure, I'm going to, after I read verse 6, I'm going to skip down to verse 18 and read the last verse, all right? So without further delay, here we are. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. This is what the Apostle Paul said to the church at Colossae in the first century as he was concluding his remarks about how the gospel of Jesus Christ ought to profoundly shape our lives and be applied to every aspect of our lives. Chapter 4, verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Verse 18, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. What exactly is Christianity? And in a world as pluralistic as ours, where so many people believe so many different things, how do those of us who claim to follow Jesus Christ go about living a life consistent with our beliefs? Those are two very important questions. And there's a lot of confusion. In fact, if you were to ask five different people those two questions, you'd get at least 20 answers. And it really doesn't matter, does it, whether you're talking to people who claim to follow Christ or who make no such claim. I mean, the confusion is as it's as bad on one end as it is on the other. So what about you and what about me? Where do we start? In our, in our quest for the right answers to these questions, where do we begin? See, ladies and gentlemen, that's why the Bible is so important. You have to have an objective way of evaluating truth and truth claims, and, and the Bible is it for us. That's one of the first things. If you're not a Christian, one of the first things you should know about Christians is that they should look to the Bible as the ultimate authority and the final voice concerning all matters of faith and all matters of things that are of supreme relevance to the human race. And what we have to do, if all of us were to do the very, very thing we ought to do, which is to develop our picture of Christianity from the pages of this Bible, we would have to conclude something. And among other things, one of the things we would have to conclude is the fact that prayer and evangelism, we'll define that in a minute, but prayer and evangelism are both integral and very inescapable, in fact, expected parts or components of the Christian life. You can't escape it. And so the encouraging thing about that is, and I guess maybe you can take this statement back with you when you go home, but God uses our conversations with him and our conversations with others to spread the joy of the gospel. God uses both our conversations with him and our conversations with others to spread the joy of the gospel all over the world. And we can see that in our passage today. Look with me again at, at chapter 4, verse 2. 
If I were to outline this section for you between verse 2 and verse 6, I would say that the first thing Paul does is he, he shows us three things that should characterize our prayers in verse 2. And in verses 3 to 6, he shows us two things, or I should say two ways in which all of us are called to participate in evangelism. And we'll define that in, in a little bit as we keep going. So let's take the prayer part of it first, and I won't take too long. Verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So there you have the three things. We are called to be steadfast in prayer, number one, watchful in prayer, number two, and thankful in prayer, number three. And without going too much into it, I'll I'll tell you what I'll do. Let me just give you an example of steadfast prayer. At the very least, that term means that we ought to have a a regularity, a consistency to our our prayer and our communication with God. It also carries with it the sense of a persevering quality. You don't give up. And Jesus talks about this in, I believe it's Luke 18, and and you find this in all parts of the Bible. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17 says, pray without ceasing. But when I think of steadfast prayer right now, the two people that immediately pop to my mind are Barbara Smith, and Lauren Barwood. Probably wouldn't have thought that, but both of them are in the community group that we meet with on Tuesday nights at 7.30 in the West End. And Barbara is always emailing me and calling me and saying, do you have that list of prayer requests? She is always praying for other people in that group, and she takes those prayer requests to God every single week. And um, she's been such an encouragement to me and to the rest of the group. And Lauren Barwood, probably more than anyone else, has been my picture recently of steadfast prayer. She... uh, She sat and she told us a story one night after we had prayed. And she said, you know, I've been praying actually for 20 years. About 20 years for this relative of mine. And to this very day, she still hasn't seen the answer to that prayer that she would like. 20 years, and that's pretty much her whole life. But 20 years of steadfast prayer, persevering, waiting on God. That's the kind of prayer that we're called to. We need to be steadfast in prayer. I won't say much about being watchful except to say that means be alert. Being watchful means be alert, and it, it speaks kind of a, of someone who's standing on a wall guarding a city, looking out on the horizon for anything that looks dangerous. Um, you, we, you and I need to watch and pray, as Jesus said in Matthew 26, verse 41. There are always things that are going to try to prevent us from praying and to come in and disrupt us while we're praying. We need to be on guard for those things. And then in terms of being thankful in prayer, here's what I've learned personally, and I, I think primarily since Heather and I have been married for these past three years. I, I realized after I got married how many of my prayers were uh, personal requests for myself, which is not bad. There's no better place to take your requests for yourselves, for yourselves than to God. But I just, I just noticed there was a lopsided ratio. A lot of my prayer was focused on me and what I needed, and, and I realized that if God is hearing please from me much more than he hears thank you, then there's something about my orientation to life and there's something about my heart. It means I'm focused on what I lack, what I don't have. And what the Bible is calling us to is thankful prayer where, where God hears thank you just as much as he hears please, per- perhaps. And um, that's something that, that I've been learning a lot over the past couple of years, and I hope, I hope that helps you. I mean, God wants to hear thank you in our prayers just as much as please. And you know something, if we were to stop our message right here, it would be enough to chew on. Isn't that amazing? You could think about that for for the whole week. 
And, and an, another thing that would be interesting is most of the world would probably approve of Christianity if all we did was talk about prayer. You see, because in our culture, it's very consistent with the current or the, the grain of the culture to, to speak about religion and certain practices in religion that are private and personal. But the minute you let your personal faith leak out into some other aspect of your life that can get on somebody else, now you've got trouble. It's okay if you believe in Jesus, but what if, what if this business of telling other people about Jesus? Well, we can definitely see from the Bible, okay, this is not something that arrogant and misinformed Christians have made up. From the Bible, we can see that all of us are called to participate in one degree or another and in two different ways in what we will define as evangelism. So let's look at that together. Verse 3 through 4, I'll lay it this way. We're called to participate indirectly in evangelism through the way that we talk to God about people. Verses 5 and 6, we're called to participate directly in evangelism through the way we speak to people about God. And the way we do it is very important, just as important as what we say. All right, so follow me in verses 3 to 4. We'll look at indirect evangelism here. Paul says, right after giving some generalities about what prayer should look like, he says, at the same time, pray also for us. That, you know, there's an at the same time thing to the gospel. Have you ever noticed that? It's, okay, you're examining your own heart, and the gospel sends you inward to evaluate the motives for why you do things, and you're, you're focused there, and you're somewhat introspective in a healthy way. And then the gospel says, at the, at the same time, turn your, turn your gaze outward. Don't wait. At the same time, do that. Do the inward thing. Examine your heart. See your sinfulness. Repent. Believe. And look out. At the same time, Paul says, pray also for us. That God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. I used to read this, and and right after reading it, I would say, oh, dear Lord, please open a door for my message. And nothing wrong per se, with that, but that's not what the Bible is saying here. Paul said, Paul's very specific. Pray also, how many of you all remember grammar and prepositional phrases and all that kind of thing? For is a preposition. Us is the object of the preposition. For us would be a prepositional phrase. Pray for us, meaning we are not the object of this prayer here. Pray for us, watch this, that God may open up a door to us. This is a call to pray for other people. And the us here includes Paul and all of the names that I did not read in verses 7 through 14. Paul's traveling team of companions here, specially called, specially gifted by Jesus Christ to declare with boldness, accuracy, and in an initiating kind of way the mystery of Christ once hidden, Colossians chapter 1, now revealed and made known to the saints. I want to say this carefully. Not all Christians belong in that us. All Christians are called to some degree. Now, I know, I know this. Let me take some time on this one. Because this contradicts what some of you have been taught. Not all Christians, while we are all called to participate in evangelism, both indirectly and directly, not all Christians are evangelists. In, a, in one biblical sense. Now, I didn't put this on a slide, but it, 
Ephesians chapter 4, which is just a couple of letters to the left, if you want to follow me over there. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, speak about some things that all believers have in common. Some of them sound like this. There is, verse 4, one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. But, verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Whenever God sticks his butt in the word, it's important. Pay attention. Grace, Jesus made a decision to distribute and apportion grace in such a way, grace for service, not for salvation, grace for service, in such a way that it made some Christians one thing and other Christians another thing. And in fact, by the time we get down to verse 11, he just comes out and says it. And he, meaning Jesus, gave some to be apostles. That's not all of us. Any apostles? Some to be prophets. That's not all of us. You can go some places where they tell you that's that's the case. But in one degree, the capital P prophet, that's not all of us. All of us can speak the word of God, and there's a prophetic aspect to that. That is prophecy, but that's not all of us, this capital P prophet. Some to be evangelists. That's not all of us. See, that's some. Or if you have an ESV, I don't think the some pops up. But an NIV will do you good right there. Some to be evangelists. So then what exactly are we talking about when we say that all Christians are called to participate in evangelism, but not all are evangelists? Well, Colossians chapter 4, verse 3 and 4 is helping us out. There is a team of traveling companions here with Paul, among whom are Tychicus, Aristarchus, Mark, Jesus, who is called Justice, Epaphras, Luke, Demas, all these guys. Maybe if Onesimus really gets his act together after he goes back to Philemon, he might be in there too. right? But all these guys are specially called and gifted by God to preach the word in such a way that they make the gospel of Jesus Christ and the mystery of this gospel, which is Christ himself, known And understood, they are to speak clearly. Look at what Paul says. He says, at the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Paul and some others are called to speak very clearly and accurately about the mystery of Christ. They need to speak this way. And and listen, not just is it the case that you and I need to pray. I mean, if there are any of you in here, and there are some who are called to preach, and you're one of these these evangelists that God really, God has given you a gift, and you are called to initiate these conversations a lot, and to ask people these probing questions a lot, and to to give them the gospel in very creative ways and, and, and faithful ways. If that's you, and you know who you are, nobody really has to tell you, you do it already. You do that already. That's one of the ways you know who you are. If that's you, then please hear this from me. And, and if anyone's listening to this via computer or, what is it, MP3? Do we do CDs anymore? Nobody does that, huh? Well, I'm technologically challenged. But you know, if you're listening to me, and you know how you're listening, and you preach, uh, preach the word. I, I, please go back and read the sermons of, of men who lived 200 years ago and preach the word. Go read Jonathan Edwards. Go read Jonathan Edwards' sermon. I mean, the titles of his sermon. The title of mine is what? Prayer and Evangelism, Spreading the Joy of the Gospel. Jonathan Edwards, 
Ministers are to preach not their own wisdom, but the Word of God. Please, preachers, I'll tell you what, nothing worse than God actually using your prayers like a key to open up a door to an unlocked nation, throwing down the so-called power of these governments that would say we won't let the gospel in as if somehow that were possible. The gospel will outlast those men. The gospel will outlast that policy. God opens a door to someone's heart that says, I will not believe in Jesus Christ. And they, they maintain this position for years, and all of a sudden, your prayers are sent to God, and he says, that's it, that's it. There's my key. And God opens up a door for certain messengers and he gives them a gift and he calls them and, and then all of a sudden that door opens up and, and in walks this message that, that you don't even recognize. Not a word about Christ. Not even a word about Jesus. Ten stories about your cat. I remember, I remember watching... Nothing, about, nothing wrong with talking about your cat as long as it's an illustration, but... It, there, there's a time to talk about your cat, but the pulpit of God is not it. It's not that time. Do that on your own time. This is God's time. Preach the word. Now, I, I used to watch cartoons. I used to love Bugs, Bugs Bunny. First base, Bugs Bunny. Second base, Bugs Bunny. Bugs Bunny, there was always this part where he was running from some monster. And, you know, eventually he would get into this room and he'd shut the door and put his back up against it and and that monster would be knocking on the door, and the monster was big out there, right? It was all big, and Bugs was scared, and, and then all of a sudden, inevitably, that part of the, the cartoon comes with the door bursts open, and you see this big shadow coming in to get Bugs, and, and some little tiny, you know, some little tiny thing just squirts into the room, and Bugs Bunny looks at it and goes, Oh, little weak, puny, inconsequential thing. I, I'll tell you what, nothing worse, especially for a fellow preacher, nothing worse than when God opens up a door for the word and some weak, puny, inconsequential message about someone's cat walks through that door instead of the word about Christ. Absolutely nothing worse to me. Uh, so if you're preaching, I, sorry, that was, a, that was definitely a soapbox rabbit trail moment. But And, and, and you know, all right, let me... Change my tone here. I get passionate, but preachers, in all in all honesty, I'm pulling for you. I'm praying for you because God has given you a sacred trust. Um, you're called by God. Do it. Just do that. Don't worry so much about entertaining your people. Um, some people who sit in your audiences and in your congregations could end up in hell while you entertain them. Don't don't do that to them. Preach the word of God. So we're all called to participate in evangelism indirectly by praying for these specially chosen. Messengers, these evangelists. And they are called to speak with a certain degree of clarity. I should say this too. Have you ever heard, have you ever heard one of these guys standing up and speaking and you thought this is, this is just completely unclear? And you left kind of, you, you felt almost cheated like, oh, this was an unclear message. I can't do anything with it. Have you ever thought that perhaps part of that might be due to the fact that you didn't pray? Not to pass the buck. But have you ever, has that thought even crossed your mind? You and I need to pray for God's messengers. But we don't just need to pray for God's messengers and participate indirectly in evangelism. We also need to participate directly in evangelism because God doesn't just spread the joy of the gospel to people through the way we speak to him about them. He also spreads the joy of the gospel to people through the way we speak to them about him. We see that in verses 5 and 6 where Paul says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, 
making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. As far as evangelism is concerned for all of us, if I had to define evangelism for us, I admit evangelism doesn't show up in our text. You don't see that word, do you? So where, where am I getting it from? Evangelism is a word that we derive from the word gospel. If you look in your Bible, every time you see gospel, it means good news. It actually comes from the Greek word euangelion, E-U-A-N-G-E-L-I-O-N. Euangelion literally means good message or good news. The Latin variant of that word is evangelium. So the evangel is the good news. So evangelism is the act. This is very important. Evangelism is, and, and in saying it this way, I'm also trying to say what it is not. Evangelism is simply telling someone else the good news about Jesus. I'm going to say that again. Evangelism is, and this is what all of us need to remember, simply telling someone else the good news about Jesus. I'll get to this in a minute. Usually as a response to something they have asked us. But evangelism is different from, though most people wouldn't recognize this, especially if you're, if you're here or you're listening and you would say, I'm not a Christian and I approach life from more of a secular worldview or a point of view or I lean more toward another set of religious beliefs, you're, you're probably saying at this time, so the Bible does encourage evangelism. It's the Bible's fault. That's why those angry guys are out there screaming at people and carrying signs saying we're all going to hell. And, and that is absolutely unequivocally not what I'm saying. That is not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that the Bible calls us to participate in evangelism. Evangelism is simply telling people the good news about Jesus Christ. It is completely different from what most people would call proselytizing. You might say, well, what do you mean? Aren't they the same thing? Just two words for the same thing. No. Evangelism, if you look at the etymology of that word like we just did, literally comes from a word which means good message. It's just telling someone that good news. Proselytizing carries with it in its etymology the very idea that you must, in order to finish it or successfully do it, convert somebody. So whereas in evangelism you have been faithful to God and you have done what the Bible has prescribed and what God desires of you simply by, in faith, telling someone the good message about Jesus Christ, in proselytizing you cannot be successful unless you convert somebody. What a difference. See, because watch this. Most of you are probably sitting here thinking, I, I can't do evangelism. I'm not good at converting people. That's not evangelism. God converts people. The Holy Spirit converts people. That's an internal work. I mean, you're talking about now, and I won't get into all of it, but you're, you're talking about it, what God does in election and effectual call of the gospel. You're talking about regeneration, conversion, justification. I mean, you're, we'll get into that at some point as a church. But you, you and I can't do that. We don't do that. What we do is we tell people about Jesus. And uh, that's about all you can do. Pray, tell them about Jesus. And if they look like they're not biting the first time, maybe, you know, walk with wisdom, but tell them again when the opportunity presents itself. I should say two things about this verse 5 and verse 6 here. There are two things that are kind of troubling. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. What, how do you all feel about that term, outsiders? 
that can be a terribly offensive term to some people. Um, so what are they outsiders to? And what are they not outsiders to? When the Bible uses this term outsiders, it's not a derogatory term. It's not a, a value judgment saying we're better than non-Christians. That's not what's going on here. That term outsiders is referring to a literary thing that Paul is doing. In Colossians 3 and 4 here, Paul is actually writing in a style that would have been recognized by the original recipients of this letter as a household code. When he begins to speak to husbands, wives, parents, children, masters, slaves, he's speaking in the language of a household code, and he's telling people how they ought to conduct themselves if they are part of this household. And anyone who was not on the list of those who are a part of that household, which would have included what we would call immediate family members as well as men servants and maidservants, anyone who was not on that list would have been considered an outsider. Okay, so... What this is, this, is, this is a very generic, not emotionally charged, this term outsider. It just means that as far as faith in Jesus Christ is concerned, which leads to salvation, there are some people in the world who have put their faith in Christ and who have received the full benefits of what his life, death, and resurrection has accomplished for those who trust him. And there are people who do not fit into that category. That's just the reality of the way things are. What the Bible means here in verse 5 when it says outsiders is those people who have yet to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, they are not outside of his care and concern. As a matter of fact, that's why he speaks to those who are inside Jesus Christ to emulate the same type of care and concern that he has for those who are outside. And so he says walk with wisdom toward those who are outside the faith of Christ or outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious. Now, I'll just ask you, and I'll let the chips fall where they may. Without looking down on anyone, try your best. But what would you say about the guys out there screaming at people and carrying signs? It's, it's, it's hard to square with verse 6, isn't it? Now, I can say that. Not, I've never been one to carry those signs and scream at people, but I, I have definitely erred in the past. And, and spoken in a less than gracious way to people as I was telling them about Jesus. Some of you probably have too. That's something we want to see diminish and eventually disappear. I want everyone here at Redemption Hill at least to get this. I want us to be a part of what God's doing in the earth to present a different picture of Christianity. We're to be gracious with our words. We're to affirm the common humanity and dignity of everyone that God sends us to. We're to see them as precious precisely because they're made in the image of God. And, and I, I know that our zeal and our desire to see them come to Christ and to be saved can, can oftentimes get the better of us when it's, mixed with, when it's mixed with our sinfulness. But please let Colossians 4, 6 instruct you. Let your speech always, never a time where this stops, always be gracious. Doesn't matter what they say, we are to respond in a gracious manner. Let your speech always be gracious. What does it mean to be seasoned with salt? I'm going to go with most people's commentaries on this. I, I think the season with salt is, it, 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 it ought not to be bland. You, when you're talking about Jesus, it ought not to be, it, it shouldn't sound like you're talking and just reading the phone book. Another thing that kills me about some preaching. It, it shouldn't sound like that. There, there should be something that someone senses or perceives when they taste your conversation, so to speak, and it should, it should make them thirsty to know more. And one of the reasons that's going to happen when you speak to people 
is because you, do you see where these instructions come in Paul's instructions to them about the Christian life? You notice how it's last? What we say to people, I love the fact that it comes last. Everything before this has been about what your life looks like because you have been raised with Christ, because you have set your heart on things above, because you are seeking those same blessings for other people. Everything is based on a life. Everything we say is to be coming from a life that, is, that serves as the validation for our message. I should, no, I shouldn't say the validation. Jesus is the validation for our message. But our credibility in the eyes of other people will be dependent upon the life that we live and whether or not it is consistent with what we claim to believe. It, it will. If I, if I cheat on my wife, none of you will listen to me after that. I mean, maybe you'll forgive me and then possibly down the road, but I've got nothing to say. I've got nothing to say to people if that happens. And, and yes, God's grace doesn't run out, but, but listen to what I'm saying here. It's very important. Our, our life is what gives us credibility in the eyes of people who don't believe. So let your conversation be always gracious, seasoned with salt. Watch this. So that you may know, here's my proof, that evangelism, direct evangelism for most Christians is in response to what other people have asked. Let your conversation be always gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So not only is most direct evangelism for us supposed to be responsive, but I like the each person because there's no pat answer for things. You've got you've to listen to each person so that you can know how you might bring that person to Christ. Jesus never changes. The gospel never changes. It's like, it's like giving someone MapQuest directions. If they're lost and they're trying to find Holton Elementary School because they want to come to a service at Redemption Hill at 10 o'clock in the morning on Sunday, which is a great thing, a great thing. If they, if they want to find this place, eventually you've got to get them to Laburnum. Some things don't change. It doesn't matter where people are coming from. Eventually you've got to get them to Laburnum. They've got to come in that door. They've got to sit in this room. But some things about how we direct them are different because of where they're starting. You all see what I'm saying? So you have to listen. If you're going to evangelize or, or participate in evangelism, you have to listen long enough to know how you ought to answer each person. And if your words aren't gracious and seasoned with salt, you won't, you won't get to the point where they reveal enough about themselves that you can actually answer. You've got to be patient, you've got to be gracious, and you have to listen to each person. And there it is. Peter says the same thing. It, it's mostly a response. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses, I believe, 15 and 16, Peter says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being, by the way, just a, a side note, I believe it's Isaiah chapter 8. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 8, you will see where Peter got this from. I think it's chapter 8. And it will be very clear to you that, that in Isaiah chapter 8, this is talking about Yahweh, Jehovah, honor him as holy. So when Peter puts Christ there, anybody ever ask you, where does the Bible say Jesus is God? There's one of them. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. To always make a, what's that word up there? Defense. In the original Greek, that is the word apologia. If you've ever heard people talking about apologetics, this is where it comes from. Make an apologia or an a defense to anyone who what? 
asks you, responsive evangelism again, to anyone who asks you for a reason. Now, apologetics is defined mostly as what? Defending the faith. Defending the faith. Everyone defend Jesus. Defend Christianity. That's not what the Bible says. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you. We defend the reason that we as individual people have hope in Christ. And why everyone who trusts in Christ also has an unfailing hope in Him. The hope in Colossians 1.5 that is kept for us who believe in heaven. Christ in you, Colossians chapter 1, the hope of glory. That's what we're defending. I'm saying, look, look, my hope is sure. I put my trust in Christ. I trust him. Here's why I trust him. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross in my place for my sins. He got up three days later. Nobody else has done that. I put my trust in him. I believe what he says more than I believe what you say. No offense. And my hope is secure. My hope is absolutely secure. And so we're, we're, not, we're not guessing this thing. We don't always have to. Listen, evangelism is not psychologically badgering somebody until you feel better about yourself because you've won a convert. Evangelism is telling people the good news about Jesus. Praying for them. Letting God be God. and Let God do the internal work that brings people new life. All right, so first, go back to Colossians then, chapter 4. And I guess the last thing I'll do, kind of it for me, really. Last thing I'll do is this. That clip isn't working, is it? We, we, I had a clip that I was going to show you about this atheistic magician. I don't know if any of you have heard of Penn and Teller. Who's heard of Penn and Teller? Oh, my gosh. Well, there you go. Cultural differences, I'll tell you. I never heard about them until Thursday. Uh, so Penn, and apparently they've been around doing this thing for 30-something years. Now, I, I know about Arsenio Hall, D.L. Hughley, and those guys, but Penn and Teller, forgive me. Uh, for those of you who can't see me, I'm black. You might not see I'm black. You might have picked up on that. But Penn and Teller, Penn, Penn was saying something about recently a guy who gave him a Bible. And he was, he was talking about this businessman. And he says, now, I know this guy knew that I was an atheist. But he liked our magic show. And he came up and he, he wasn't just flattering me. Y'all can actually look it up on YouTube yourself when you go back home. It's, it, it's Penn Says, and the title is Gift of a Bible. You can listen to it for yourself. It's about a five-minute clip. And in it, this guy, Penn, says, he knew I was an atheist. But he came up and gave me one of those corny-looking green Gideon Bibles, the New Testament with the Psalms and the Proverbs in it. And Penn's, I mean, Penn's a real atheist. He's like, Psalms, Psalms. That's in the New Testament, right? Yeah, Psalms. The Psalms, yeah? And he, I mean, so this guy gets this thing, and he was taken aback by the approach of this man who, who was waiting in the corner, like people wait for pastors. You ever, he, said, he said he was waiting over in the corner in what I like to call the hover position, just kind of waiting. for. <laughs> you ever just waited around for somebody? The hover position. So this guy gives him the Bible, and Penn pretty much says, thank you. You know, the guy has to say, look, I, I'm not crazy. I'm a, I'm a businessman as opposed to a crazy pastor, right? I'm not one of those crazy pastors. I'm, I'm a businessman. I just wanted to give you this Bible. And he, he looked the guy in the eye and, and said this to him, and Penn could see something in his eye 
And I, I'll tell you, I'll just I'll save what Penn said. It's too good to spoil it. I won't get it right. Please go back and watch it. Please go back and watch it. But at the very, what's that? Yeah, we'll put it on the site. Or You've got to see this thing. At the very end, though, here's what he did say. Now, I'm still an atheist, and I know there's no God. And one man, one polite man living his life right isn't going to change it. He's probably right. But I'll tell you what, he's wrong about the fact that there's no God. Whereas one polite man living his life right might not change after him, one perfect man dying for his sins on the cross might change it. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus Christ died for sins upon the cross. In Romans chapter 5, verse 19, we're told, verse 18, that just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so now through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. See, one perfect man living perfectly and dying in the place of sinners with love in his heart, mercy in his eyes, actually does turn people's lives around. Be gracious in the way you speak to them. I'll, I'll leave you with this story. Uh, there was a person that came up to me. She was actually from the University of Richmond and was probably what she would call a non-practicing Christian, which is, which is by the way, not to, not to say anything bad about this individual, but that, that by the way, is an impossibility, just, just to make sure you know. You can't, Christian is an identity. You can't be a non-practicing Christian any more than you're a non-practicing human. You're, you're a Christian or you're not. Really, really, you're a Christian or you're not. But she came up and she had a very sincere question. She had heard the message of Christ. And this is where I got to participate directly in evangelism in a responsive way. And she said, well, what about good atheists? I mean, what about those people who live these exemplary moral lives but just don't believe in the Christian idea of God or don't accept Jesus Christ as their the coin words are your Lord and Savior. And I, I, I remembered that I needed to speak graciously to her. And, and she actually made it pretty easy. She was very sincere. Um, if, if I told you who it was, Sarah, you'd know who she was. So I won't, I won't spoil it. Maybe I'll tell you later. Uh, she, she sat and she listened. I could tell she was ready to listen. And I said to her, your, your question is a very good question. It's one that actually bothers most of us if, if we're honest. Said, but what I've learned to do is to take a different kind of approach to a question like that and to look at some of the assumptions that are packed into it. We need to, when we hear things like that, we need to see what assumptions are in that and are those assumptions consistent with reality. When we ask what about the good person or the good atheist or the good whatever, Hindu, Buddhist, Christian, Good is a comparative term. In order to use that term, you're saying, I have measured this person by some standard of goodness, and after evaluating them, they have passed the test. So you must have a standard of goodness by which you have measured that person. And what I've learned to ask myself is, what really makes a person good? Is the standard of goodness that I'm using to measure that person the same as God's? And another question I think, and we, we should entertain this one, especially as the atheist is concerned, is it really possible, actually forget just the atheist, everybody, is it really possible for somebody to be considered good if he or she ignores the very person who gave him or her life? 
And I gave her this illustration. I said, now, let me, let me try to bring this home for you. What if I were to tell you I live a very exemplary moral life in many regards? And you observe my life and you notice I was an incredible dad to both Kira and Brianna. I was very nice to everybody here in the church. I was a decent pastor. Uh, I, I did my job very well. Very kind to people. I gave lots of money to the poor. I helped shelter the homeless. I did all of these things. You would look at me and you, you, everybody would say, that's a good person. See, because the culture's standard of goodness is only looking at surface level morality and actions. And they would say, that's a good person. But what if I did all those things and I barely acknowledged my wife's presence? The few times I did speak about her in public, I spoke about her in a way that belittled her and demeaned her, made her sound inconsequential. I just completely, you could just tell there was this disdain in my voice. And that I actually believed that so many other women were much more attractive than her. What would you think about me? Would I still be a good person? Why is it that I am able to do 99 out of 100 things very well in a way of which you would approve, but yet if I do that one thing incorrectly, you, you can no longer say that I'm a good person? Don't try to rationalize what you feel in your heart. You know you can't call me a good person because instinctively you know that if someone failed in their most primary relationship, you cannot count them as a good person. If I belittle and demean the one to which I have given my life, to which I owe my life by a promise, by the relationship which exists between us, there's no way you can call me good no matter what else I do. So I asked this girl, I said, now how is it then that we can consider the atheist good when he or she constantly belittles, demeans, and treats as inconsequential the very God who gave him or her life? How do we come to consider such a person as good? How do we con come to consider the, the so-called Christian who says that that's what they're, who, whose life is saying that? The Titus thing, they might say that they know God, but by their actions they deny him, Titus chapter 1. How can we say that that's a good person? No, the reality is, is that there is no good person except one, Jesus Christ. And this is where I now engage in evangelism. That was just apologetics. Evangelism, now I said to her, now, now here is another important piece, and I'll close with this. Am I saying that I'm any better than the atheist who rejects God? I told her no. No, I'm not. I can safely and honestly say that without a show of false humility. I'm not any better because if the thing, if the way that our goodness is measured is actually first and foremost by the way we love and honor God, then I fail too. I've already blown it. And guess what? So have all of you. And everyone listening to me, you too. We've all blown it. There is only one who has loved God with his whole heart, his whole soul, his whole mind, and his whole strength. And now the only chance that any one of us has to be forgiven and accepted by God is to come to God through him. What he did with his perfect life when he offered that life up on the cross was he purchased forgiveness and acceptance for every other human being who at best is good in our own eyes but who in reality is not good in God's eyes. But God, because he is good, 
has not allowed himself to remain only concerned with justice as far as our case is concerned. He's poured out mercy. He sent Jesus into the world to live and to die and to purchase forgiveness and acceptance for us. And that forgiveness and acceptance and eternal life will be given to all who believe and no one else. Everyone else will get what they deserve. Those who come to God through faith in Christ will get what they could never deserve. They will get mercy. They will get grace. They will get forgiveness. They will get acceptance. They will get eternal life. They will get joy. Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, you and I are called not just to prayer and to participating in evangelism indirectly by speaking to God about people, but to participating in evangelism directly by speaking to people about God because the only hope any of us has is Jesus Christ. Pray together. Lord, I'm not going to do a big altar call, but if there's anyone here in this room or listening over their computer, I just pray that right now would be a holy moment between you and them. They have heard the message of Jesus Christ. Lord, please do what only you can do. Regenerate the heart. Cause them to be born again. Justify them with the righteousness of Christ. Lord, convert the soul. Turn them to you. Begin to let them taste the everlasting joy that belongs to your children and your children alone. And for the rest of us, Lord, I just pray that you would strengthen our faith in Christ through this very same message of the gospel, that we will be brought anew to repentance and faith in our Lord. Let us speak graciously to all those you send our way. Because who are we but sinners saved by grace alone? We ask all these things in your name, Jesus.